From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Monzo launches their buy now, pay later product, Monzo Flex. QED announced $1 billion Fintech war chest. And face payments launched on the Moscow Metro. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get started with the show, we want to tell you about a few things that we've been cooking up here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Welcome to episode 564 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser. How are you doing, Benjamin? I'm really well, thank you, David. How are you? All right. Uh, I was saying a second ago, I'm feeling a little bit worse for wears after After Dark last night, but I'm, uh, I've am i been been a good soldier. I've carried on today and, uh, you know, tried to get through it all. But uh, do you know what? I, I say that. I know uh, the person who's responsible for this will be listening to the podcast, but I got up really early yesterday. I got up at like 5 a.m. to get to an 8 a.m. meeting in London. And the person then cancelled on me at 8.06. Like, it's just bad behavior, isn't it? So if you're listening... That's- horrible human who did that to me then uh, you know i'm gonna take it out on you at some point so uh, he knows who it is like i love him really uh <laughs> right anyway other than my uh, traumas getting up super duper early as always on this show we're joined by brilliant guests so making a welcome return following his appearance on our spotlight series we have roger death who is the head of e-commerce at true layer how are you doing roger yeah really good and uh thanks for having me um, back on the show appreciate it and no worries at all. I mean, it's been a, an exciting week for you guys over at uh, TrueLayer, hasn't it? I mean, we'll be delving a little bit into that later on in the show, not wanting to preempt one of the stories, but uh, it must have been a lot of fun week, eh? Yeah, exactly. Really excited to get um, customer and product launches all, all out in the same week. It's been a busy one. If you could just do one, it'd be great. Two in one week, it's all good, isn't it? So, uh, all right. And uh, returning guests, we are also joined by Oscar Williams, Groot, City Editor at Evening Standard. Oscar, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, David. I can sympathise with your 5am starts. as uh, That's what I'm doing regularly now that I'm at the Standard. So uh, having to make the trek over to High Street Kensington to get there for seven every morning. But thankfully, or not thankfully, work doesn't cancel on me every morning. So it's always worth the trip. That's good. It's, it's hard getting up, isn't it? But it's good when you're there, isn't it, at that stage? And it's been a, a <laughs> big few weeks for, for you guys. Obviously, the, the Monzo scoop uh, will be coming to a little bit later. But, um, you know, lots of news happening in the market right now. Yeah, there always is. And uh, yeah, make sure you read the standards to read it first. 
Very good. And making their FinTech Insider debut, we have Polly Jean Harrison, journalist at the FinTech Times. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Very good. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself and FinTech Times, and then we'll get into the news. Yeah, sure. So I'm a journalist at the FinTech Times, and I'm actually just two weeks shy of being there for a whole year, uh, which is crazy. I'm very excited about that. Um, And to tell you a little bit more about the FinTech Times, so we were established back in 2016, and we are a global multimedia news outlet reporting on basically everything to do with the FinTech world, the latest and brightest ideas, anything that we can get our hands on. Uh, So we offer online news and features, print editions, webinars, podcasts, and more. Uh, To give you an idea of my personal interest, though, since we do report on pretty much every aspect of the FinTech world, I really like talking about, you know, when FinTechs do good, so whether that's green finance or financial inclusion. My favourite kind of stories are really just how fintech is making the world a better place. Uh, But I'm thrilled to be uh, here today chatting to you guys. I'm really looking forward to it. Very good. Oh, we're very journalist heavy today, aren't we? Uh, You you guys are, what I love about journalists though, you're always very well researched, which uh, really takes the pressure off, you know, (laughs) on days where where you're feeling a little bit worse for wear. So producer Laura, well done on bringing on uh, a bunch of smart people. It's uh, it's always good. Me and Benjamin can just ride this one out tonight, can't we? I have all so right. many I'll, statistics, so lot. you're all good. So many. Fun. I, I use statistics. I just make them up on the spot. Like uh, we get, we get so many complaints. Honestly, it's uh, it's unreal. Anyway, we better get on with it because there's loads and loads of stories. And actually, starting with the one that Oscar, you're super uh, used to uh, talking about this week. Monzo unveils the buy now pay later product with three thousand pound limit. So Monzo has announced its buy now pay later product, Monzo Flex, as I said earlier on. Uh, first reported by the Evening Standard. Well done, Oscar. Uh, Monzo's buy now pay later feature was launched officially on Thursday. Monzoflex can be used for online and in-person purchases over £30. Uh, people can repay what they owe in three instalments and pay nothing. Um, although uh, customers can then choose to pay in six and 12 instalments, but these options would then pay interest of 19% APR. Uh, Monzo said it would be offering customers pre-approved credit at checkout up to £3,000 after a comprehensive affordability assessment, which is something a little bit different to what others are doing, right? Uh, Oscar, uh, let's come to you first, because I reckon you're going to be the most prepared, and then we'll riff off what you say, shall we? What do you think? (laughs) Well, I think it makes a lot of sense for Monzo to be doing this. I mean, um, obviously, uh, they got stung quite badly last year for uh, essentially not having that much diversified business lines during the pandemic. So as soon as transactions fell off, uh, they were in a bit of a tough spot. So building out, um, you know, sort of new innovative lending uh, products like this makes sense. Uh, you know, the the... The challenge is going to be just the competitive nature of the landscape. Uh, just an hour ago, I got a, a note in my inbox saying that Curve, uh, I'm sure everybody knows Curve, they've also launched a buy now, pay later product, also called Flex, on the same day. So, I mean, that just really underlines how competitive this market is. Two companies in London have launched exactly the same product on the same day. So, uh, you know, they, they obviously have an advantage in that they've got a established user base, but... Whether it is enough to, whether it contributes to growth, um, I'm not so mm. sure. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because with Curve, I can really understand the Curve have got a, you know, a, a behavior already sort of programmed into their customers to a certain degree of almost, you know, deciding where payments need to go, you know, post payment. So it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But with Monzo, I, I guess, you know, we're 
the buy now, pay later sense. The they're sort of tapping into the the pay later bit, but but actually, obviously, a lot of the benefit that we've seen with you know the rise of Klarna and you know POS integration to to really sort of do this at the point where people are making those transactions, it feels like a slightly different proposition, doesn't it? This is this is really more of an evolved lending product than it is really buy now, pay later in the way that we've seen it with Klarna, right? Mm. I think they're also, you know, speaking to the company, they seem to be keen to differentiate as well and say, listen, this is a more grown up version of what you've seen from Klarna or other operators like this because uh, they're a regulated bank. They offer this sort of credit uh, checking and uh, uh, more checks and balances really to make sure that you are using it appropriately and um, are, are going to be able to afford this product. Um, at least that's how they like to badge it. But w- what is interesting, I suppose, is the fact that they are very upfront about charging interest on the six and 12 month um, products versus, say, you know, a, a Klarna where. Uh, they say, look, listen, this is pretty much free, but obviously if you miss payments, there's uh, interest and and fees associated with that. So in some ways it's more transparent, but um, whether that translates to the customer, the average customer who might just see the 19% and think, oof, um, again, that, that'll be interesting to see. Mm. Benjamin, I, I know this is one that um, we talked about a couple of times in the office, didn't we, this week? But um, what, what do you think? Is this uh, is this sort of Monzo's product set evolving with the times a little bit? Uh, or is it, uh, you know, a sign of, I mean, arguably, you know, Monzo's, as Oscar said, was uh, stung a little bit with the, uh, the everybody's turning profitability and, and lending's a great place to go to if you're looking to turn profitability, right? Yeah, I mean, lending is an obvious place to go. And of course, Monzo's got quite a lot of younger customers. Buy now, pay later is particularly popular with younger customers. So there's a there's a logical fit. Um, I think Oscar has made a really good point about, you know, the danger that many customers don't really understand what they're doing when they're um, taking out these types of loans. I think Monzo will make it much clearer to customers. But yeah, what proportion of people understand what a 19% APR is, has got to be very small, certainly less than 19%, I suspect. Um, so yeah, good. It's a, I think it, it's a logical move for Monzo. They do need to start generating more revenue. They've got a lot of customers. They need to start um, getting into other products like lending and so on. And they've been doing that, but um, there's pressure on Monzo. So it's a logical move. You know, if this brings a bit more professionalism to buy now, pay later, um, that's a good thing because at the moment it's too easy for people to take out buy now, pay later loans without realizing what they're doing and then get slide into lots of debt um, so actually, I'm quite pleased to see regulated banks starting to get into the market because hopefully it'll result in better regulation and better understanding among consumers. Yeah, agree. And uh, you know, competition in any product line is is a good thing from a customer outcome perspective, isn't it? But uh, Polly, what, what do you think to this one? Is this uh, again? Is this um, everybody's doing buy, buy now, pay later? So we shouldn't be surprised when everybody jumps on this bandwagon. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because, like you guys have been saying, it is does feel like a more evolved version of buy now pay later um which you wonder why they sort of market it as as buy now pay later in the first place maybe to tap in on some of the hype that buy now pay later is getting and the popularity because you know young people love buy now pay later and all that kind of thing so i think that's really interesting 
Um, but like, again, I can just only hark back to what you guys have been saying. There is that concern of, you know, people sliding into debt and again, thinking about young people specifically. Um, but I was actually having a really interesting conversation with someone this morning about buy now, pay later products. Um, and they were from a lending company, a traditional lending company. And it's funny that you mentioned about the 19% APR interest because their impression was that in a couple of years time, as this sort of buy now, pay later fight plays out with all this competition, that pretty much most, if not all, buy now, pay later products will charge interest because there'll be nowhere else for these companies to go. So I just thought that was a very interesting uh, insight. And then to sort of read it again with Monzo's um, APR, I just it's a very interesting thing. And I definitely think it's just going to be such a really interesting uh, sector to keep an eye on over the next year, two years, three years, to just really see how it's all going to play out. Mm. Well, obviously, I guess the, um, you know, where people negotiate with merchants to be paid by the merchants, you know, whereas actually with lending, the customer is footing the bill really in terms of that that sense but but again it, it kind of comes back to you look if you if you have a range of options for your purchases and you're so long as you understand them you know so long as you understand the instrument that, that you're using to to facilitate the thing that you want to do then you know more choice is always a good thing isn't it but uh, it is going to be uh, it is going to be fascinating you know we uh, we used to have this thing called money where we sort of we had it and we spent it uh, now there's all these different plethora of different ways of acquiring the thing that you want to acquire um, Ro- Roger what do you think on this one I mean and do you know what I'll come back to everybody uh, has anybody actually used buy now pay later afterwards like uh, you can come up with your weird and wacky things that you've been buying on it, Benjamin. I, I know ASOS, all those socks that you buy. You've got some a nice collection of socks. But uh, Roger, what uh, what do you think? Is this a uh, is this just the sign of the times? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, banks have always had flexible loans. They just called them overdrafts, right? In the past, and they also charged interest on them, and you they were kind of affordability checked. But I think. Um, I think it is interesting, this idea of actually looking at affordability. Obviously, from our perspective, a true layer, we're often thinking about, um, you know, how do you access bank data to actually try and work out these things anyway? Um, and I think Monzo has a leg up because obviously they see the bank data that you have already. But we see this in perhaps not in my area, but in other areas like gaming where um, affordability checks are going to become more and more important. So actually, you know, Perhaps the lens, the lens we kind of look on it is actually, do Monzo have more data than Aklana because they have the affordability data? And perhaps that's the thing that's going to move forward, um, is how do, how does people, how do people in general get a better view of can someone really afford this, whether it's a, a short loan in buy now or pay later or gambling or anything else? Um, mm. and I think that's maybe the, the sort of wider trend we might need to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well, the, and the managing of the messages when somebody can't, um, because actually, I mean, we've, you know, people who are banking with Challenger Banks, whether it's Monzo or Starling or whoever, have, have sort of, you know, they're almost facilitating um, discretionary spend. And actually, that discretionary spend has a, a certain sort of attachment to it, doesn't it? It's the, uh, you know, the slightly frivolous pocket money for yourself type feel. So it's going to be interesting if actually those challenger banks are now saying, well, we don't think you can afford that thing. Actually, managing those messages as a brand is going to be really, really interesting to see how they do that. You know, they already have, uh, you know, sort of outshone some of the 
the bigger players in the market in terms of actually transparency and communication and the the sort of authenticity that they deliver those things with. But arguably, this is a much harder message to manage, isn't it, in terms of uh, saying no to people. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how this one uh, how this one plays out. But I mean, back to my um, slightly flippant comment about socks, Benjamin. But you know, is any, do you use Binary Pay later? Does anybody on the panel use Binary Pay later? <laughs> I've used I, it, yeah. I bought I bought my work shoes with Binary Pay later. There you go. Still paying them off, but you know it makes it more manageable. You must have a lot more fancy shoes than I do, Oscar. That clearly that's what it is. But uh... or a lot less money. <laughs> it's going to be one of those two, yeah, I, I guess. Was, isn't it? I, yeah. That was my question. It's like how expensive were those shoes? But maybe it's just you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think I, I, I don't. Well, I think they're like sixty quid. I don't know if that's expensive or not for shoes anymore. I don't know, but you know, twenty quid over in three installments felt a lot more. You know, it was like, yeah, let's well, do that. I mean, and, and that's where they get you, isn't it? It's like, look, would I rather the money in your bank than theirs? Like, sure, you know, that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But the only only places I've ever yeah. used sort of buy now pay later has been like a sofa or like. Uh, MFI with a kitchen, you know, those types of sort of random things where it's like <laughs> spread. But but actually, like I've never gone down to you know sixty quid for some shoes. So, uh, but uh, how about you, Polly? Are you are you a, a big uh, a big user of Binary Pay later? Uh, as as a millennial, um, I guess I should say yes. But actually, no. I've only ever used it once, and that was purely to see what all the fuss was about. Because as a journalist, I can't possibly just sit by and everyone else have fun. Um, so and it was all right. I, it did the job. Like I said, I bought a hundred pounds worth of clothes and then paid it off in three weeks, and it was pretty easy. So yeah, I can see why. I could see the appeal for sure. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned the sofas and stuff because I feel like that is the very traditional sort of way of thinking about buy now pay later. The amount of you know people who have used you know it, it credit to pay it in that way is interesting. So yeah, I don't know. It, it's just such an interesting thing to think about, especially when you talk to young people. Yeah, and I mean you know it's it's kind of standard or has been in the past to sort of almost say oh, well, take out the store credit card at purchase to kind of in, do an instant facilitation of credit. People don't think about it like that, but that's that's kind of what it is, really. Um, so, you know, I think that's always been there. It's just, you know, uh, perhaps the what the, the, the genius of Klarna and these people is like just making it the seam, most seamless experience, right? You're not filling in a paper form at checkout, right? You're just clicking on a different button. And yeah. I think that that's a, that's the thread that, that that you know a lot of these fintechs are pulling on. Well, that's the thing. I, I wonder if you know cash cash flow smoothing for large items sort of makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? But um, I think the you know the the benefit of Klarna and, and arguably you know PayPal before this was just like they were an easier thing than finding my wallet when I was buying a thing. So people then use it because it's you know it's the the uh, the best solution close enough to the problem, isn't it? But uh, Benjamin, do you want to take us home on this one because we better wrap up? But uh, yeah. I mean, because the real benefit here is for the merchants, right? If you're a merchant, you know, selling smaller things, things that cost less than sofas, you know, like Oscar's shoes, um, if you get that extra sale, you know, because that merchant, you know, maybe Oscar, for whatever reason, didn't have the 60 quid, but he bought the shoes because of buy now, pay later. And so the real benefit is for the merchants of driving up that that additional volume. Um, I think Roger hit the nail on the head, though. The key question is affordability. Um, and there are people buying things on buy now, pay later when they can't afford it. And I think there's a big question of when the, when are these markets going to get bigger, better regulated so there's more attention paid to affordability. I think Monzo coming in is a step in the right direction. For the record, I can afford the shoes. 
I'll be honest. I'm just happy you got some new shoes. Really, like uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> Me but, too. You know, like it felt like it was the time. So uh, <laughs> anyway, look, we'll, we'll reach out to Monzo and see if we can get those guys on to to talk about this one a little bit more. Because actually, I think as you we were all sort of alluded to, the positioning of this one is super, super important. So uh, we'll reach out and see what they've got to say. All right, uh, the next story that we had was one that was covered uh, in quite a few different places, but um, first up over on Finextra was QED builds 1.05 billion fintech war chest. Uh, venture capital firm QED Investors has closed on two new funds with more than $1 billion to invest in early-stage startups as well as more established players. Uh, fund 7 is a, or V11, like uh, it's nothing like cr- trying to create uh, a sense of importance is using Roman numerals in uh, in those things, is there? Uh, is a $550 million early stage fund, and then they've got a $500 million growth stage fund as well. QED plans to invest in between 40 to 50 companies out in its early stage fund. Uh, the firm expects to make 20 to 25 investments out in its growth stage fund as well. The war chest will be used to invest in fintech companies in the US, the UK, LATAM, and Southeast Asia as well. Uh, in total, the film has... Uh, The firm has invested in more than 150 fintech companies since inception in 2007. Um, Dang, that's a big amount of money, isn't it? I mean, I know over the last, uh, you know, six, seven um, months and maybe a year before that as well, we've got a little bit desensitized to, uh, you know, what used to be millions is now billions. But even still, when you're looking at early stage investment, having... 550 million to invest in early stage investment companies like that's going to be a lot of companies that they're going to support to go and do some uh, super interesting things so what do we think on this one benjamin is this um you know we're going to have to start making this show probably like three hours just to cover all of the companies that are going to get investment in the next 18 months aren't we yeah i mean i think it's 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 fascinating and fantastic that you know there's still so many opportunities in fintech um that that capital is is piling in it's partly because interest rates remain low you know there's not that many good alternatives for investors so why not invest in disrupting an industry you know we've seen so many uh super impressive companies grow up over the last decade um creating improvements in people's financial lives making finance easier for companies there's tons more opportunity in different markets around the world um it makes a lot of sense. It does. Uh, I guess, Oscar, Polly, you guys are just going to get sick of writing these headlines, aren't you? Such and such, <laughs> razor, such and such. Like, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an easy job for the next two years. Just keep copying and pasting that headline. It writes itself. Oscar. Yeah, it does. Yeah, well, it seems like it's, yeah, it's a sort of the start of a new cycle, maybe. I mean, we're, uh, from my perspective, we're starting to see a lot of IPOs crystallize, you know, whys and uh, things like that. Uh, so... Clearly, the businesses that were started at the start of the last decade are coming through for investors, and so it makes sense just to re-up and get the new, uh, the new generation going. And if it since it worked well last time around, why not do it at you know double, triple the size? Because uh, it's it's a numbers game, isn't it? At the end of the day, so if you invest in enough, a couple of them will come good, and then that's your whole portfolio done. Indeed. Well, QED, so they've been going for investing for 14 years, but previous companies they've invested in have included Credit Karma, Klarna, Remittently, Nubank, and Avid Exchange. It's not a bad swing rate, that, is it, in terms of actually what they're looking for? You know, they've uh, they've found some gems in there and uh, continue to invest in them as they've, uh, they've scaled as well. But uh, what do you think, Polly? Is this going to be uh, that that's next wave, as Oscar sort of mentioned? 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, if they've been doing this for 14 years, clearly it's working for them. Um, and clearly it's, you know, still a good idea to invest in fintech, whether that's at growth stage or at early stage. I think it's really great that they have got um, an early stage specific fund because I feel like there's still so many fintechs coming out and sort of starting to start up right now that could do with the funding. I mean, particularly we think, you know, women owned or minority owned um, startups. I think that's going to be a really cool key area where you can see some investments. Um, but yeah, it just makes sense. Keep investing in fintech because fintech keeps knocking them out. So why not? Indeed. Well, um, with that amount of money as well, I mean, when 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 are we done? Like, I, I know I know we're the company that says digital bank is only one percent finished, but bloody hell, like, how much money do we have to spend to get to a hundred percent? You know, like, so at what point do you reckon? You know, almost we're seeing almost every slice of financial services being attacked, whether that's on a B two B sense for all of the different slices of technology, and we're seeing you know new core banking systems, you know embedded banking. Every slice of financial services has got somebody having a, a, a pop at it, but. To the point where they they still think there's you know uh, at least a billion of investment that they can make into to solving more and more problems. Like uh, I mean, Benjamin, it's it's interesting to sort of start looking at well, when is enough enough? I think that's the, one of the key questions is is what are the themes that this fund is going to invest in? Um, because there's no point investing in yet another you know digital bank in a market that's already got seven or eight digital banks it's about as you said david about finding those inefficiencies that exist elsewhere in financial services you know maybe getting down into the rails into the payment rails get into areas of insure tech invest tech that haven't been invested in to polly's point looking for you know minority owned or women owned business or um, sustainable fintechs and so on and finding real themes that really resonate uh, you know maybe themes that are aligned with climate change and so on finding fintechs that have got a unique story um, and a real reason for growth because we are starting to see consolidation at the top end of fintech you know some of those big established fintechs um you know really gain a strong foothold they're starting to acquire other businesses and obviously we've seen lots of firms like visa and so on you know buying up fintechs um so some of this is almost a question of like are they are they looking for you know for startups that they can invest in, get them up to a certain scale and then sell them on to, you know, a Visa, a MasterCard, a Stripe, you know, someone with big pockets. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear as well a bit more about what their strategy is. What's their exit strategy? Are they trying to get to IPO or are they just trying to build up some businesses and sell them yeah. on? Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think with um, with this one as well, you know, I can, can only think when, you know, an organization comes out and says they've just uh, raised this amount of money, uh, I can only imagine the amount of emails they must be receiving with uh, people with uh, really good ideas of uh, what they could help them spend that money on. But uh, on that note, we're going to have to wrap up the first half of the show. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meeting event. We're facilitating more than 30,000 meetings for 4,000 participants. It takes place online March 8th to the 10th, 2022. Join startups, established fintechs, investors, banks and credit unions, media analysts and much, much more as they come together for partnership discussions, vendor presentations, investment pitches and other meaningful collaborations. For more information and to get your ticket, go to www.fintechmeetup.com. 
There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with Deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D-E-E-L, dot com forward slash 11FS and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Hey folks, welcome to part two. And the next story that we had was covered by a lot of different places, but first up on AltFi. True Layer teams up with Kazoo to power open banking payments and refunds. Uh, Open banking platform True Layer has joined forces with online car retailer Kazoo to, uh, I don't know why I can't say Kazoo properly. Like, uh, like, uh, Nigel, you're going to have to have a go at me at some point on this one. But uh, um, True Layer will help Kazoo streamline its services, making it easier for customers in order to pay for products online for Kazoo to issue refunds. Uh, Customers will experience a quicker, easier checkout by securely connecting to their bank to confirm payment. Uh, Jonathan Howell, Chief Technology Officer over at Kazoo, said, with refunds, there is a high level of financial anxiety. If you don't get thousands back in your bank account right away, that's very much understandable. Uh, He added, the ability to return that money in a quick and transparent manner and frictionless way creates a superior customer experience, open banking delivered by Trulo Technology provides us with that. Roger, I just think I should just hand the mic to you at this point. Um, this is super interesting. And I know we've talked a lot about really embedded finance and actually that being facilitated. You know, we talked about uh, buy now, pay later being, you know, putting the button as close to the thing makes the makes a big difference. But, but actually taking financial services to the place where it really solves problems just makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, this has been a great partnership with us, and obviously it's been some time in the making. Um, and, you know, Kazoo's had quite a busy few 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 weeks as well with uh, IPOs and these kind of things as well. So um, it was always a really strong match because obviously Kazoo, although they're doing something fairly traditional, they're, more, you know, they're almost more like a tech firm that happens to sell cars than uh, the, other way, the other way around. But... There is a real problem, particularly with high-value payments, right? Like, if you've ever tried to buy, try and buy a car with a credit card. It's very hard because you have a limit of £3,000 on your credit card, right? And so there's some fundamental things that are quite broken, which open banking can obviously help with because you can pay with your bank, but with that slick experience. Um, I think the point that um, Jonathan, CTO, touched on, though, is that other direction, right there, the refunds payment, because that isn't included in open banking, right? Open banking is very good at paying in, but there isn't really anything else there. So as part of my role in head of e-commerce, we've launched this uh, capability, basically combining the payment experience with a, with a merchant account to allow you to kind of round trip the payments um, and uh, securely make sure that if you had to refund, um, uh, a payment for Kazoo, then it will come back to exactly Roger Diaz and exactly the right account and in 10 seconds, right? So not any of this like, oh, wait seven days, hopefully the money will turn up. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really, I think it's really exciting because it's not just saying we're doing something that, you know, saves the, saves the merchant some money on transaction costs. Like this is a better consumer experience, right? Um, and, 
you know, we we see that as well with the, um, you know, obviously you can buy a car on, on Kazoo, but you can also sell your car to Kazoo. And this is where I think, um, yeah, it's a really different sort of experience. So um, if you're familiar with open banking, the, what actually happens is when you say you're selling a car, you link your bank account at that point. You say, okay, I'm happy for Kazoo to know what my bank account is. And when they come and pick up your car, they check, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a Volkswagen Golf. And they click a button and you get the money in three seconds, right? So it's, it's using this new technology to actually do things in a different way that's quite exciting for us. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've uh, we've sat on the show a bunch of times and uh, you know read out uh, survey says nobody understands what open banking is. But I mean, Oscar, like this is a this is like a real life example in the real world where we're not. You know, I know it's being facilitated by open banking, but like I don't think that people will care. It's just actually solving a problem, right? Well, exactly. I think it's the same uh, with a lot of technologies that you know. The people behind the scenes get very excited about the the specifics of what it's called or what it involves, but ultimately, when it breaks through, is when people don't even really notice they're using it. All that they have is uh, a more seamless experience, and so that's a that's a sign that you're doing something right. If people uh, use it a lot, but maybe don't necessarily even realise they're using it, they're just like, oh, this is much easier than normal. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a, a great application. And to, I was just thinking there as well, I wonder if it will have any similarities with buy now, pay later. I imagine people aren't impulse buying cars, but if you remove just a little bit of friction, will that have any uh, impact on conversion rates? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, I guess with the refund part, you know, the I guess a big part of that is like if you if your car purchase go falls through, but you just don't have a bunch of money just sitting around waiting to buy, you know, to 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 put it down for the next one that you're doing, you you actually could lose out on the car that you wanted in the first place. So being in a situation where you can get that money back into your hands or into your account really, really quickly means you can actually get out there and try and find a car, can't you? So uh, Benjamin, again, you know, evolving financial services, getting embedded uh, greater and greater, right? This uh, f- feels like a good step again. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think future generations will look back and say, "Oh my God, was it really like that?" You know, in the 1970s or the 1990s or whatever, and not believe that that this wasn't it wasn't always like this. Um, you know, and I, I'm sure there are, you know there are other countries that that are looking at the UK and saying, "Hey," or listening to this and saying, "Hey, we we can do that." Um, you know, this this was the whole point of open banking was to make things easier for customers, um, make it easier for them to control their money and to feel safe and secure. Um, so I think you know I think this is super interesting deal. Um, and car buying is a big, complex emotional experience. Um, you know, if you're buying a new car, it's hugely expensive, and obviously you get into lots of credit agreements. And if you're buying a used car, there's always this, you know, because it's not always on the main street, you know, it's a sort of slightly back street. There's always this slight fear of how's that going to work there? Um, so I think having more confidence um, that the money, you can see the money moving out into and out of your account um, is going to make people feel much more comfortable um, about the process. Yeah, and I think as well, the outside of car buying, you know, I think because of um, obviously the pandemic we've lived through, this idea of um, leading with kind of an instant refund. If you think about things like flights or concert tickets or these kind of things, becomes quite interesting. It's like how do I how do I get to the mindset where I could commit to a thousand pound holiday? Um, you know, and I think you know some savvy retailers are thinking maybe this is you know how do I lead with refunds if you like? Because Kazoo does that. You know, how do you get over the fact you're buy, buying a car online? Well. No quibble, send day money, money back refund. Like you just say, come pick it up. I don't want it anymore. 
and you think about the mattress manufacturers, you know, the Caspers of this world, they're kind of leading with refunds to get over the hump of some of these issues. So it's quite an interesting space, the, the, that convergence of like building customer confidence by making, you know, the reverse of the transaction easier. Mm, that is interesting. I mean, Polly is, is as Roger's saying, like the almost um, taking out that friction of of there being a problem in a process potentially increases confidence at the beginning of the process in itself, doesn't it? Which is uh, is smart. Yeah, absolutely. I can only agree with everything that everyone's already said. I think, again, when we're looking at refunds, the amount of times where, you know, you've bought something from somewhere, sent it back and then have to wait, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks even for the money to get back into your account. Even if it's only something small, like, you know, 20 quid, it's still a big deal having to wait for that money to come back. So I think this is just absolutely huge. And like everyone else has already said, open banking is just making things just so simple and really just getting people over the hill um, and I just, yeah, I, I love open banking. It's just brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like we need to make that T-shirt. I love open banking. Like I would it's, wear uh... that every day and I'm, <laughs> I'm not afraid. I'll, I'll send you the fiver later that we agreed, right? Yeah, oh God, thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been three wow. weeks now, Roger, come on. Yeah, no, sorry. Uh, it's not on faster payment rails, sorry. There you go. It's uh, that payment for that, uh, the bribe about uh, talking about open banking, a lot slower than the refunds that you can expect as part of that deal, which is uh, good, to, uh, good to hear. All right, we better move on. Uh, their next story was over on TechCrunch. This was Vero raises $510 million in Series E funding. I, I actually sort of can't believe Vara's at Series E. They seem, they still seem new in my brain. So it's like, it's just amazing that they've progressed so quickly. Um, Vara Bank has raised a staggering $510 million in a Series E funding round at a $2.5 billion valuation. Um, hmm, that's an interesting multiple, isn't it? At, uh, at such a hard, uh, large raise. Um, new investors, Lone Pine Capital, led the latest rounds along with others, including Declaration Partners, Eldridge, Marshall Walsh, Berkshire Partners, and a bunch of other people that I've never heard of, uh, apart from BlackRock. Apparently, they put some in there as well. Uh, last year, Varo became the first US non, uh, neobank to be granted a national bank charter, which is huge. Like that, The fact that that happened still is quite staggering given the, just the absolute complexities of getting a, a charter that works uh, in the entirety of the US. Um, Varo noted that in the 13 months since obtaining its bank charter, the company has doubled the number of opened accounts to $4 million then has tripled its revenue. Uh, the massively oversubscribed finances comes just seven months after the fintech startup raised $63 million in a round led by NBA star Russell Westbrook. Um, super interesting. I mean, oh God, man, we were saying a billion was quite a lot, but they, like, they, they literally just took half of it. So if uh, maybe if QED really wants to start investing in those later stage ones, they've got to, they've got to raise another couple of billion to uh, start getting in at that point. But um, Oscar, back to our point earlier on around desensitizing to big numbers. Dang, this is a big number. Yeah, I mean, what stood out for me here was uh, the, the lists of investors. I mean, you were saying there were a lot of names that you didn't necessarily recognize there. That's because uh, quite a few of them are hedge funds, you know, Marshall Waste, Lone Star. Um, uh, and that seems to be a growing uh, trend that hedge funds are getting into the, the sort of startup VC space. Um, I was reading in the Financial Times recently that it's been a record six months for hedge funds getting into venture investing. Um 
obviously Target Global has been blowing the lights out across the sort of tech funding landscape, but it's it's really, really a hot marketplace. Um, and, you know, VCs are going to have to really demonstrate more value if they want to get into these sorts of uh, fintech deals. Um, and the other thing I would say is, I'm, uh, I have to say, I'm not as across the US market, but I'm slightly surprised to see uh, these sorts of uh, digital banks still getting funded. It feels like that was the hot uh, idea a couple of years ago, but obviously there's still still some uh, uh, road to run there, and perhaps it's the, the banking license angle that is really attracting the investors. Mm. I mean, it's interesting as well. I mean, actually, uh, I mean, given, I mean, we have got the chimes of the world, you know, out there sort of doing the thing, but but for one. And the, to your point around the the big hedge funds coming in, I mean, this is them in investing in like the the next wave of of big banking in in the U.S. Really, because with a with a national charter, I mean, essentially that's a you know almost literally a, a ticket to print money. Really, in terms of uh, the U.S. market, so so long as they market this effectively and and really get out there. The other thing that I find always find interesting with Varo, so Colin Walsh, who's the the CEO of their uh, I actually worked with when uh, when I was at Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, it's interesting to see almost that export of the UK scene going to other geos and establishing, you know, arguably very similar things that we've seen in in the UK space. But um, Polly, what do you what do you think on this one? That uh, again, huge amount of money, but uh, you know, they almost seem so well set up. This can't fail. Yeah, it was interesting. It was a big uh, number. And then when I was reading the article as well, I thought it was interesting that Walsh said that they didn't really need the money. Um, and he, that was a quote from him in the article, which I thought was was quite interesting. But I mean, they're well, doing... Well, with 500 million, I, like... I'll, you'll take I that's mean, the thing. You, know, you don't need it, call but you'll old, take call it. Calling old favours when we work together. He, he seemed <laughs> lovely. I'll see if he can lend me 100 million. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you know, they've got this, this amazing round. They've got this amazing valuation. Clearly, you know, they can do some really cool things with it. So that's quite exciting because I know haven't they they've said they're going to boost financial inclusion I know that was one of their big um things that they've been talking about recently with like marginalized and underserved communities uh, so I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to do and if they've they've got the money to do it which clearly they have which is very exciting and thing to keep an eye on yeah I mean it's in, it's intriguing isn't it often when we see organizations do such gigantic raises you know particularly as you say with Colin sort of saying you know we don't really need the money in that sense then what the hell do you spend five hundred million dollars on to 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 do? You know that is a very large raise. To you know, they must be doing something. Given how effective digital scales, and given how new that organisation is to do things, then five hundred million goes a hell of a long way to build literally anything you want to. You know, so it's uh, it is going to be amazing to see the the features, functionalities, and products that uh, come out of the back of that that uh, large amount of money. But um, anyway, there was a we're going to have to move on, I'm afraid, because we're we're rapidly running out of time. But uh, on the um, the sort of sheer raft of news that there was this this week, there's always a bunch of stuff that that we don't have time to to cover in absolute detail. But uh, Benjamin, we're going to cover a couple of these in a rapid fire. Do you want to uh, get going on the first one? Yes. So there was a story about uh, one in five British consumers being blocked from paying with cash, um, which obviously raises concerns, particularly for sort of elderly and vulnerable customers. Uh, this came from a survey by which, uh, formerly the Consumer Association in the UK, um, finding that they surveyed a thousand people and they found that 18% of them, so nearly one in five, um, had been unable to pay with cash at least once um, when trying to buy something between April and July of this year. And of those who refused, so of, of, sorry, of 
those who were refused, of the 18% who were refused, one in six, so 3%, um, were then unable to pay for an item and had to put it back. And the charity Age UK said, you know, we hope that all businesses can continue to look at how they can assist older people who depend on cash to go about their daily lives. Um, so I think, you know, this is, this is a, it's an, it's a, it's an important story. It's a story we've, we've heard before that certainly is an issue in the UK. Um, you know, as we've, uh, switched to digital and digital currencies of people getting excluded, um, it'll be interesting to know what proportion of people had a card payment turned down or unable to pay a card payment. I've certainly experienced that in, in the past three months. In fact, to actually only have, uh, you know, a fifth of the of people turned down once in three months is not that many, actually. Um, but I think what's really important here is to think through what are the solutions, right? How do you help people who aren't able to use cards? How do you make sure they continue to get access to cash? You know, what are the answers in terms of banks sharing branches of ensuring there are ATMs available, that those ATMs are stocked up and so on, and making sure that people have alternatives. So I think to me, the, the key question is, what are the solutions here? Um, we know there's a problem. Um, uh, what I'm really interested in by is who's who's finding solutions for it. Mm, super interesting. I want to want to definitely sort of watch how it uh, how it progresses. Uh, next up, there was a, a quick story here uh, over on uh, Business Leader. This was former Wise employees raise 8.5 million for multi currency investing app Lightyear, a commission free investment platform founded by two early Wise employees, has managed to raise 8.5 million. Alongside the funding, the company has launched its app and is now onboarding UK customers for its waiting list. Lightyear gives customers the tools to to add, hold, and invest in money in multiple currencies, uh, removing the need for conversions and giving users unlimited access to more than 1,000 global stocks. Uh, the investors include Mosaic Ventures uh, and Eileen Burbage, who uh, early investor in Monzo, and a bunch of other things. Uh, I mean, Eileen's usually not wrong on these things. She sort of usually gets it pretty right in terms of where she puts her money. Uh, so I would be very surprised if this doesn't work. But equally, I mean, free trade's a thing. You know, we've seen um, players like Revolut are getting heavier and heavier and heavier into the space. So, I mean, is the market just getting a little bit crowded for this type of thing? Um, I guess we'll wait and see. But uh, definitely for, for sure when it comes to, uh, you know, people who are trying to uh, uh, get into investments, they've got a greater choice than ever. And the big incumbents are going to get squeezed out further and further and further with a, a lack of speed and a lack of functionality. So, uh, again, customer choice. It's always a good thing, Benjamin. Indeed. So the next story uh, comes from Finextra. This is the story that uh, a pair of uh, Ripple veterans have unveiled a global micropayments network for Web 3.0. Um, so they plan to build a new micropayment network backed by blockchain technology. It's going to be called Ping and Pay. And they plan to create a new category of high frequency, low value payments of below around $20, um, aiming to unlock new digital retail services. Uh, the network plans to launch next year in the UK using a digital coin backed by the pound. Uh, the network will eventually use stable coins in each country anchored to the local currency. Uh, consumers and merchants won't need to know that they're paying or receiving stable coins. They'll just see payments in their local currency. Um, so Richard Bell, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Ping and Pay, uh, said the major card networks can process tens of thousands of payments per second. But even so, the cheapest debit card payments cost retailers at least 20 pence per payment, which represents 20% of a pound. Um, Ping and Pay solves this problem and will unleash a new wave of e-commerce innovation for consumers and the next stage of the Internet's evolution 
Web 3.0. Super interesting story. This has been a problem for years. You know, the, 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 the processing cost for smaller payments is significant, and that di uh, discourages consumers from paying and merchants from accepting. I'm sure you know, we were just talking about people not accepting cash. You also, I'm sure there are many listeners who've had a merchant not accept a card payment for a small amount because the merchant doesn't want to pay the fee on that. So there is a real problem. Um, and so this is super, super interesting. It's, you know, it's the sort of thing that, you know, blockchain has, um, you know, has been touted as a use case for for ages. One of the really interesting challenges here is when the payment is small enough, people almost can't be bothered to think it through. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, there's a couple of journalists on the call. I was a former journalist. You know, people have talked about paying small amounts for articles, but people almost can't be bothered to work out, do I want to pay 20 pence for this article or this music track? I'll subscribe to a news service or music. I'm not sure I can be bothered to work out whether I can be bothered to pay 20 cents for this or that or the other. So I think this will be fascinating. It'll be really interesting to see. But there's a, there's a challenge um, of getting people to do the mental maths of can I even be bothered to pay for this rather than just subscribing to a service. I agree. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting. It's uh, making people do slightly more work, isn't it, than uh, than less. But uh, all right, well, let's bring everybody back for the last story. I mean, the last story is usually a funny one, but this one's more of a sort of an intriguing one and get everybody's sort of reaction about uh, really whether they would feel comfortable with this or, or not. So uh, the last story was uh, covered, again, in a few different places, but payments was where we picked it up. Russian bank VTB is piloting face pay technology. So Russian bank VTB is partnering with Moscow Metro to launch uh, the use of facial recognition technology at all stations. Customers who submit their biometric data and link a bank card will be able to walk through turnstiles at all Moscow Metro stations with funds automatically being debited. Uh, about 15,000 passengers already use FacePay to travel on four Moscow Metro lines, which were part of a earlier trial. Uh, Moscow Metro only introduced card payments in 2015, so they've evolved it pretty quickly. Uh, and this is part of two pilot projects being run by VTB, with the other letting customers view their banking notifications through an augmented reality feature. What do you guys think about this one? Uh, I mean, I'm... Um, I always think facial recognition and facial payments are, are really interesting. In fact, I mean, we did a we did a thing an event where you could pay at the bar with your face, which uh, I was quite intrigued with. It was more, it was almost like one of one of those challenges. It's like, uh, okay, it recognizes me me now, but after four drinks, will it still recognize this face? But uh, I was proven wrong. The technology is a lot better than I thought it was. But uh, would you feel comfortable enough, uh, you know, Polly, to to submit your all of your credentials to? you know, a central body to then be in a situation to pay with your face in on the metro? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is super cool. Uh, <laughs> it's just paying with your face. How, how much cooler can you get? Um, I think it's interesting to see how if we did implement it like on the metro here, where did it, you know, sort of trickle down to? Because I live in rural Wales and we've only just got card payments on buses, never mind facial payments. So uh, it's probably going to be a long time uh, until I get to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I think biometrics really are the, the way to go. They're the way for the future. You know, my face is my face. It's very going to be very hard for someone else to use my face to pay it. Um, I guess, you know, there's the, the data aspect of things and having, you know, your biometric data stored somewhere. But I mean, the amount of selfies I have on Instagram anyway, my face is already all over the internet, plastered for everyone to see. So it it personally doesn't bother me. And I just think it's it's really, really cool. And I'll be I 
have to going to go to Russia and try it out maybe once uh, restrictions. Well, it it would be interesting to make payments fraud at that point. I, I'd have to have a very elaborate Oscar Williams Groot mask to uh, to make it cheaper for me to go on the underground with it at that point. But uh, <laughs> well, clearly, clearly nobody's been following the work of Tom Cruise, who in uh, obviously a Minority Report ripped somebody's eyes out to uh, get in, and then in. Uh, Mission Impossible, the first one, has that incredible mask that fools them all as well. You know, this stuff is possible. It, it, that's what it reminds me of, dystopia. You know, this sort of like, oh, wow, we're living in the future that uh, everybody predicted, you know, 20 or 30 years ago with a sort of, oh, God, imagine if this happens, this is what we, we must avoid. But, of course, the dystopian future is always much more banal than the uh, people project it's very true. It always, I mean, sci-fi always gets there first, doesn't it? But uh, it never really paints the uh, particularly good ending to it. But uh, Roger, what, what do you think on this one? I mean, uh, there's obviously always a, a lot of pushback with, uh, you know, surveillance and, and sort of submitting this type of data for these types of schemes. But I mean, I would do this. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, is it? Because I think we've touched on this before, like convenience tends to win in the end, right? So we went from pounds to oyster to contactless on the, on the tube. I personally, I don't know, I feel a little bit funny, maybe just because of the the country involved. But, um, you know, you have to submit this data for your passport already, right? This is, you know, this is how you get through passport checks today. And, you know, I should say, obviously, with my uh, open banking hat on, you know, paying by biometrics is kind of the core thing of open banking, right? The idea that you, you know, whether that's face ID on your phone or thumbprint or something like that, you know, that is a more secure way than trying to often than, uh, you know, handing over some random digits on a card, right? So um, it it probably is the way of the future. I feel perhaps slightly more nervous than Polly about this, but um, uh, uh, yeah, I think convenience always wins. That's that's the mantra that I, um, and it'd be really stupid to bet against convenience. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Benjamin? Would you use this? I agree with with Roger. I mean, so, so firstly, there's some super innovative Russian banks. Um, you know, there's some Russian banks doing some really interesting things, including VTB Bank. Um, but it is also slightly concerning you know, that the, some of the countries that are doing this, you know, Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin is very, very interested in artificial intelligence. He wants Russia to be a world leader in artificial intelligence. Um, what does the Russian government wish to use that for? Um, what does the Chinese government wish to use some of this kind of surveillance data for? So there is a dark side to this. And Oscar was talking about dystopia. Well, you know, there's a dystopian present. Um, so yes, I think you're completely right, Roger and Polly, when you say convenience will win and this, this kind of thing will be popular, but there is a dark side to this as well. Unfortunately, that the technology is out there. Very true. There's always, uh, you know, good, good use cases and, uh, and people potentially taking advantage of them, isn't there? But, uh, do you know what? I, I'd just like to be able to tell everybody that I can get around just because of my looks though, you know, like, um, <laughs> don't care if anybody else could do it. I'd be living the dream. Wouldn't I live in that dream? Uh, and on first that time note, it's true. Yeah. yeah, I know. First time it's true. Don't tell my mum. She's very proud of me. So, uh, anyway, uh, we better wrap up. There's loads of different things that have happened that we haven't been able to cover, and I'm sure we'll bring them up on another day. And actually, there's two or three stories that we're definitely going to follow up with uh, the people who have been involved in them and uh, see if we can get them involved in having more of a conversation about them. Um, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about all the good stuff you're up to, Roger? Um, so obviously, just go to our website, truelay.com. If you want to reach out to me directly, I'm obviously on LinkedIn and these kind of things. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Very good. Oscar. 
I'm Oscar W. Groot on Twitter. Uh, pick up the Evening Standard every day to uh, read read me there and obviously standard.co.uk as well to see uh, uh, see the latest. Or if you see Oscar just commuting really early, feel free to come up to him and say hello. He, he loves talking <laughs> to strangers. Please loves, don't. No, please don't. don't. I'll be na- napping. You can I'll show off napping. your new shoes. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Tell me you like yes. your shoes. Yeah, so yeah, I really yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> Polly, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, of course. So just head over to our website, thefintechtimes.com, or we're at the, at the Fintech Times on Twitter. Or if you want to hear more from me specifically, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, which is at opollygene, or I'm on LinkedIn and, and things like that. So definitely give me a buzz. Very good. Benjamin? Uh, so 11fs.com or on LinkedIn. Very good. And I'm always lurking on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you want to join the conversation, just head over to social media and type in 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you really want to, you can email us on podcast at 11FS.com. I'll definitely get a picture of, ben, of, of Oscar's shoes and distribute them for you on social just so you know what we were talking about. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Goodbye.